You are listening to the Martin Luther Sermon Podcast, and this is Luther's sermon on John chapter 15, verses 26, to John chapter 16, verse 4, preached on Exaudi this Sunday after the Ascension, the last Sunday in the season of Easter. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. For more information about the Luther Sermon Podcast or to hear more Luther sermons, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. I'm reading from Luther's House Postal, reading from a translation published by J.A. Schulze, publisher in Columbus, Ohio in 1884, uh, a text and translation that is in the public domain. First, the Gospel reading, John 15, 26-16-4. Jesus said, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues, yea, the time cometh, that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things they will do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them, And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. Here ends the Gospel reading. Luther's Sermon Our text today consists of two parts. The first speaks of the Holy Ghost. The second treats of the persecution awaiting those who preach the Gospel and confess it before the world. You are aware that we believe the Holy Ghost to be true God, eternal and almighty. Christ designates him in our text by an especial name when he calls him the Comforter. This appellation would indicate that the Christians must be ready to endure dangers and to suffer pain, for what need would there be of a Comforter if sorrow and suffering were not our lot? The suffering of the Christians, according to the text, shall consist not only in being put to death, which would not be the severest trial of their faith, but in this also that those who slay them shall think that they are doing God service and will proclaim abroad that their victims suffered deservedly. It is indeed a most appalling death and punishment when everyone is ready to exclaim, Ah, it is right thus. Thus, this heretic has but received his dues. Thus we see that the Christians have no sympathy nor consolation from the world. They are persecuted and slain as heretics. Sometimes they are even weak enough to think, perhaps we acted amiss and were imprudent in our confession. Thus they are looked upon as evildoers by the world and are scarcely easy in their own conscience. Christ had in view just this distressing condition of the Christians when he speaks of the Holy Ghost as a comforter. By this name he tells us, I know how you will fare in the world, that you will often be without cheer and consolation. But I will not desert you then, nor permit you to perish in your misery. And when you are destitute of all comfort, when you are filled with anxiety and fear, then I will send you the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, to strengthen and to cheer you. Listen, therefore, attentively to his words, and remember them well. There are two kinds of consolation. The one is of a worldly nature, false and deceptive. It directs man to trust in wealth, honor, and power, in friendship and favor of princes and rulers of this world. Christ teaches his disciples in our gospel that they will not have this favor and friendship of the world, but that it will employ all its power, influence, and wealth to oppose and crush them. 
He tells them that they ought not to be frightened or downcast because they are in want of this kind of consolation, which is in every way miserable and unreliable. It lasts only for a little while, perhaps till some fever, a pestilence, a headache, or some other bodily ailment comes. Then it amounts to nothing. But, says Christ, I will give you another comforter, the Spirit of truth, who can indeed comfort you before the world and in your own hearts whenever you are distressed, timid, poor, and forsaken. He is just what he is called, a comforter. He brings no sorrow. Wherever sadness and grief dwells, there the comforter has not his home. This comforter is also called the Spirit of truth, because he does not comfort only for a little while only as the world does, but with an eternal consolation which deceives no man. Our hearts are apt to contradict this and to say, We feel nothing of this consolation, but on the, on the contrary, we see how the world enjoys pleasure and happiness while the Christian must suffer much. John the Baptist is beheaded, but Herod and his harlot are banqueting and full of glee. Our experience is similar. The world begrudges us every bite of bread and thinks it does a praiseworthy deed when it persecutes the Christians. But the Pope, his cardinals, the bishops, and the whole host of enemies of the gospel live at ease in gardens of roses without tribulation. Where now is the promised comfort? Christ answers, It is present, and you have it with you. Only distinguish between the two kinds of consolation. It's true the world has a peculiar comfort, or it would not be so careful and careless and jovial. But it is a lying comfort, which does not proceed from the spirit of truth. It may happen in a moment that the world's consolation lies shattered and powerless. On the other hand, this comforter of Christians is a spirit of truth, pouring into our hearts a consolation unceasing. Though John had not that consolation which Herod and his concubine had, though he was by them cast into prison and cruelly beheaded, yet he was not without consolation. The Holy Spirit cheered him thus, John, make thou no account of the terrors surrounding thee. Despair not, because thou art imprisoned and subject to the taunts of the world, for thou knowest that its pleasures are of short duration. Thy suffering, however, will also be brief and will be followed by everlasting joy, one moment of which is more precious than a thousand years on earth with all its so-called pleasures. This consolation fills the heart of John so that he does not fear death, but praises God for his liberation from this miserable sinful body and for the entrance into eternal life. Whence has the Holy Spirit this consolation? From the Father, as Christ here declares. For he, the Spirit of truth, proceedeth from the Father. This is a most valuable passage which proves the doctrine of the Trinity. For if the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, it follows that this Spirit is eternal, since nothing can proceed from the Father, which in its essence and nature is not like unto him. Just as God the Son is eternal because he is born of the Father from eternity, and what is born of the Father must be like unto him, so the Holy Ghost proceeding from the Father must be likewise eternal. And again, because Christ the Son of God sends the Holy Spirit, as he here declares, this Spirit must proceed equally from the Son and the Father. This article of our confession we will, however, pass by for the present, and will treat it further at some other time. What is the consolation which the Holy Spirit brings? He shall testify of me, says the Lord. That is, the devil will surely terrify, and the world will persecute and kill the Christians, but the Holy Spirit will be present with his testimony to arouse faith and to encourage the wavering heart, making it firm in Christ. The Comforter will indeed not bring us thousands of dollars in our distress, as perhaps the world would do, but he will cheer us with the gospel and the word of promise so that we can exclaim, 
Let them take all, family and home, our goods and our honor, yea, even our life. Yet we will not despond, for we have a helper above, Jesus Christ our Lord, who for us became man and died and arose again from the dead and ascended into heaven on our behalf, as we daily confess in our creed. Why then should we fear? The Son of God, our Lord, who went into death for us, cannot be our enemy, but will defend and aid us under all circumstances. If he thus loves us, then surely we have no cause whatever to fear or to mistrust him. This consolation we find in the words of Christ, He shall testify of me. For outside of this testimony of the Holy Spirit concerning Christ, there is no sure and abiding consolation. The words, of me, ought therefore to be written in large letters and well remembered. They teach us that the Holy Spirit, when he comes to console, preaches no other doctrine, not the law, nor anything else but Christ, since it is impossible to comfort the troubled hearts except by preaching Christ's death and resurrection. It is certain that the urging of the law, of good works, and of un an unblemished life brings no consolation. It only makes men defendant and full of fear. For without Christ, God appears terrible, full of wrath, and ready to punish. The preaching of Christ alone conveys true consolation, which beyond all doubt makes glad the heart and cheers them in all sorrow. Hence it is of the first importance to lay hold of this consolation, to cling to it and to say confidently, I believe in Jesus Christ who died for me. And I know that the Holy Ghost, who is called a witness and a comforter, speaks and testifies throughout all Christendom of no other source of consolation for the sorrowful than of Christ. This shall comfort me, and this alone. If there were any other better and more reliable consolation, the Holy Ghost would give it, but there is none. Therefore, therefore he testifies only concerning Christ. Why does the Lord in this connection make use of the word testify? Could he not just as well have selected some other expression? He does it to direct our attention especially to the word. It is true the Holy Ghost works inwardly in the heart, but this working, ordinarily, takes place by means of the preached word. Thus says St. Paul, Romans 10, How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? For this reason Christ calls the Holy Spirit a witness, who bears his testimony through the mouth and the word of the apostles and all preachers who proclaim the gospel of Christ in its purity. Let therefore no one who needs consolation suppose that the Holy Ghost will show him Christ personally or speak to him audibly from heaven. He bears his testimony publicly through the preaching of the word, which we hear with our ears. Through such preaching he moves the heart and testifies of Christ also inwardly. But this inward testimony is only the result of a preceding public and outward preaching of Christ, which declares that he became man for us and that he was crucified and died and arose again on our behalf. We thus learn from our text in this lesson that if we desire to be Christians, we must be content, though we do not here on earth have much money, wealth, pleasure, and the like, but rather the enmity of the world and, in addition, sin and death and an accusing conscience. When such affliction visits the Christian, their hearts are apt to despond and fear. They are inclined to say, Why is it thus? What have we gained? Could we not have been Christians without undergoing such privations and tribulations? It is our own fault now that we are in such misery, etc. Beside, the awful examples of many well-known persons who, when they had fallen into great and shameful sins, perished in their misery, will be remembered and tend to increase the despondency. In such periods of gloom and unrest, we need especially the Comforter, and we have the word of Christ for it, that he will most assuredly be present to teach us 
that such heavy, oppressive thoughts are not from him, but from the spirit of evil. And this is evident enough that such thoughts terrify and lead to despair. The Holy Spirit, however, does not terrify. He consoles, encourages, and testifies that Christ has conquered the world and its ruler. Hence, all thoughts which cause sadness and depression are from the devil. The Holy Ghost, in testifying of Christ, how he gave his life for our redemption and arose for our justification, dispels all gloom from the heart and fills it with consolation and joy. His testimony is therefore unto us a sure proof that Christ is our friend, that he does not desire our destruction, but our eternal salvation. All this is contained in the expression, He shall testify of me. We ought to be especially mindful of this in our conflict with the sectarians and false preachers. Here we are told that the Holy Ghost, as a comforter, shall testify of Christ and implant him in our hearts. The evil spirit, on the other hand, terrifies the consciences by holding up to them sin and death. But then comes again the Holy Spirit with his testimony, which consoles and admonishes us not to look merely to sin, death, and damnation, which is indeed an awful, terrific, and overwhelming view, but to turn our eyes to that man who is called Jesus Christ. Of him we confess. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day rose again from the dead. And why do we confess this of him? Did not all this happen to him that we might have consolation amid sin and death? Let us therefore lay aside our timidity and despondency, for which there is no good reason. If Christ were not with us, if he had not achieved for us redemption, then indeed we uh, would we have ground for fear. But now he is with us. He himself declares, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. For this he suffered death, and now sitteth on the right hand of his heavenly Father for our consolation. Wherever this truth is preached, there the voice, testimony, and teaching of the Holy Spirit is heard. All other preaching, whatever it may be, is the voice of the law, or perhaps the very devil himself, who, through hypocrites, heretics, and self-righteous persons, often testifies and preaches, but only the, to the sorrow, pain, and despair of his hearers. May God in mercy protect us from the devil's testimony, and preserve us to our end in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the first part of our gospel for this day, which treats the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, and of his work and consolation among the Christians. Let us now also consider the second part, which treats of affliction and persecution. First, we should mark the words of Christ to his disciples. They shall put you out of the synagogues. These words simply mean that those who excommunicate the Christians and put them out of the church, as they say, will claim for themselves authority to do so, and will boast that they are the synagogue and the true church, and suppose themselves entitled to much praise for thus zealously serving God. For this reason Christ adds the words, Yea, the time cometh, that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. It therefore behooves us to learn what the true church is, and to bear in mind that there are always two kinds of churches. The one has the name only, but is a false church. It claims to contain the people of God, but lies in this assertion. The other church has not the name, but is nevertheless the true church. It is difficult to distinguish these two churches, 
for we must admit that the false one also possesses the rightful office of the ministry. Therefore, although we hold and openly declare that the Pope and his followers are not the true Church, we must nevertheless admit that when they baptize or ordain ministers or perform the marriage ceremony, the office and word of God are right and valid. Accordingly, we do not rebaptize those baptized by them. Cyprian erroneously held that the baptism of heretics was no true baptism, and therefore he rebaptized those that they had baptized. He contended that the heretics were without the pale of were without the pale of the Christian church and therefore had no right to the functions of her office. But in this he was mistaken. We must bis- distinguish between the office itself and the person executing it. The man may be guilty of sins and unconscientious dealings which show that he is not in full communion with the church of Christ. Yet this fact does not justify us in regarding the office which he happens to have in the church as of no account. We must remember that the office is Christ's and not the person's who performs its function. If anyone disregards the command of Christ so that he preaches and administers the sacraments otherwise than the Lord has ordained it, then of course we deny the validity of such administrations. But as long as the order of Christ's institution is observed in the administration of the office, its efficacy is not destroyed by the imperfections and sins of the person entrusted with it. If we would, therefore, correctly distinguish and judge those two churches, we must not confuse our investigation to the office of preaching and administering the sacraments. For the false church may also have and execute this office correctly and still be no church. We all know how the false church, with much external splendor, parades the name of God and prides itself on this account. Let us not be deceived thereby. The second commandment tells us plainly how the name of God may be taken in vain. And in the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, we ask that the name of God be hallowed, which is an indication that his name is often desecrated. Be we therefore not affrighted, when the false church proceeds to condemn and excommunicate us in the name of God and of the church, since we know that the name of God is often abused and taken in vain. And when they thus would threaten and overawe us with the use of the name of God and the power of the church, we will remember that the greatest unbelievers can make the same attempt, or there would have been no occasion for the caution not to take the name of God in vain. Our judgment in regard to the true church must therefore be based principally upon the fact that she is where God's name is honored and where her glorious privileges are not abused. That this judgment is correct we learn from the declaration which the Lord makes in our text concerning the false church. For it is evident that the true church will not have recourse to the sword or worldly authority. The false church, however, continually takes the sword in hand and persecutes the true church, as Christ here predicts, They shall put you out of the synagogues, and whosoever killeth you, etc. From this we learn what the false church is, and still more plainly from the following verse. And these things they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. This is a most excellent description of the false church. It may have the office of the ministry and may boast of the name of God, but it is, after all, accursed, because it knows neither Christ nor the Father. When do we know Christ and the Father? Not when we read Mass or put on a cowl or fast or give alms, nor when we perform any other similar work, but only when we do know Him, when we believe that He is the Lamb of God which bore the sins of the world, 
and that he, in our behalf, became man, was crucified, dead, and buried, and that he arose again on the third day and ascended into heaven. This knowledge and belief gives consolation and a sure confidence in God that he will be gracious unto us for the sake of his Son. Thus will we know also the Father, when we are assured that he is merciful unto us and prepared to forgive our sins for the sake of his Son, Jesus Christ. Where there is this knowledge and belief, there is the true church, and wherever it is wanting, there is the false church, even if the office of the keys and the name of God are there. If we consider these criterions, well, we can make no mistake in judging where the true church is. The division which in our day prevails in the church perplexes many, so that they are in doubt to which part they should adhere. Their great mistake is that they do not apply the rule just now stated. We preach that man has no redemption from sin and death except in the death and resurrection of Christ, and that whosoever has this faith shall be saved. But he who does not believe this cannot enter heaven, though he do ever so many good works. This doctrine is taught plainly and powerfully both in the Old and in the New Testament, as we shall show you in more fully on other occasions. But what is the consequence of this our preaching? The Pope and his multitude persecute us on account of this doctrine. They excommunicate us and call us heretics and desire to kill us because we hold this faith. They teach that man must work out his own salvation or he cannot enter heaven. They hold that Christ merely made satisfaction for our original sin, but that we must with good works sanctify, satisfy the wrath of God for every actual sin which we have committed after our baptism. How does such teaching correspond with a knowledge of Christ? Surely if Christ made satisfaction for our sins, we need not do it. Good works ought indeed to be done by us, but not for the purpose of thereby atoning for our sins or of purchasing an entrance into heaven. By this rule we can easily judge which is the true church. We are excommunicated because we know no other righteousness and grace but that which Christ gained for us by his death and resurrection. The Pope and his church, on the other hand, seek their salvation in their own works, merits, and satisfactions, which surely indicates that they know neither Christ nor the Father. Since we then have this great treasure, to know Christ aright, while they are ignorant of him, let us be undismayed and undisturbed if they who know not Christ nor the Father anathematize us and call us the devil's church. We will rather concern ourselves with the knowledge of the Son and of the Father, because if we know God aright, we are secure, and will not heed the senseless squealing of the Pope who boasts so haughtingly of his church and hands us over to the devil. We comfort ourselves with the knowledge that the day will come when a far different judgment will be passed upon us, when God himself, with his unerring sentence, will declare us free from the false judgment and ban of men and will own us as his church before his holy angels. On earth it will ever be, as Christ says in our text, there will be two churches, and the one ever at war with the other. The false church has the sword in hand, and with it defends itself against all public rebuke and punishment. Wherefore it is evident that the Pope and his crowd cannot be the true church, for of her it is said in our gospel that she will be persecuted and put under a ban. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Whom does Christ mean by that little word, you? Does he not therewith designate his own beloved disciples and apostles? These shall be put out and killed. By whom? By those who call themselves the synagogue, the church. The same holds true in our day. 
Therefore, we fear not their proscription and persecution, but patiently submit to it, knowing that true Christians and the true Church are thus proved and made manifest. We, of course, speak here only of those who are thus hated and persecuted because they know the Son and the Father. The Anabaptists and other sects are also persecuted and suffer much, but they do not know Christ and the Father, for they deny the blessing which God bestowed upon them in their first baptism and establish a new kind of monkish life with the purpose of obtaining thereby a merciful God and an entrance into heaven. The true church, however, knows Christ and the Father. She consoles herself with the knowledge that only in Christ is God reconciled unto us, and for this consolation and hope she is persecuted. But she suffers uncomplainingly. It is nothing new to her, for Christ has prophesied this. Therefore she submits and lets the Pope with his followers call her a heretical church in the devil's home. The true church can look complacently on the fury of her tormentors. She knows Christ and the Father and is well assured that the Pope and his multitude, much as they vaunt themselves, have no knowledge of God, and therefore they persecute the believers. The true Church suffers willingly with Christ, looking in faith to that time when she will triumph with him in glory everlasting. God grant us all this glorious triumph through Christ and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been Martin Luther's sermon on Exaudi, preaching on the text John chapter 15, verse 26, to chapter 16, verse 4. You're listening to the Luther Sermon Podcast. For more Luther sermons, uh, or to hear or learn more about the Luther Sermon Podcast, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org.